Good evening. We are up to the fourth instalment of our series on creation and the cross. Tony is enjoying himself in Italy <laughs> this <laughs> evening and so you've got me Lisa and Andrew is um, happily doing the vast majority of the talking tonight. And it's a bit different from the other weeks as we've looked at the cross. They've been some big picture discussions and reflections of all sorts of wonderful ideas. But tonight is more a deep dive into Genesis chapter 22. And uh, so some of us have already read your paper. And I think I'll hand it over to you to okay. explain that how you want to do this evening. All right, so what, what we'll do is I will read the paper again because some people may not have had a chance to read it, although it was sent out. Uh, then we will have some time to take some clarificatory questions. And I just think we're a little bit of feedback there. And so that'll take a while. And then there are questions that people sent through and more questions that we might have where I really want to explore with people. Um, how, how do your views of God change with a, with a different view of, um, of Genesis 22? And the, as Lisa said, it's a bit more of a deep dive, a bit more exegetical than, than big picture. Um, this paper I wrote about nine or so years ago because I was in a debate over time with people about justification by faith alone. So we were looking at a number of topics. I'm not sure why I wrote this one up. Um, but certainly, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's a troublesome passage for a lot of people. But that will come out as we read it. And one of the reasons that this idea that we're going to come across in this paper will be will be a fertile area for us to think about is as we're trying to think about atonement theories um, the, the the predominant view is god needs a sacrifice and what what we start to see possibly in scripture depending on whether how much you buy into the idea what if it's humans that need a sacrifice and not god so that's sort of a you know, i should have said spoiler alert but however let's let's read the passage uh, and it's a draft discussion paper it has been for nine years Okay, so the purpose of the, this paper is to provide an alternative understanding of God's rationale for asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. The traditional understanding suggests that God wanted to test Abraham's loyalty to him and his faith in his God's ability to keep his promise, despite the command, uh, commanded fate of Isaac. The alternative understanding suggests that God wanted to transform Abraham's faith in God as the God who is unlike the gods of the surrounding nations and those gods needed human sacrifice. So the, the introduction is justification by faith alone is a famous Reformation slogan that needs explanation if for no other reason that it's often often accompanied by other similar slogans like christ alone scripture alone grace alone which raises one's curiosity about the very use of the word alone since none of them ever actually seems very alone uh, there's good reason for this so nevertheless given the reformers were quite intelligent we, we simply assume this puzzle they posed for us was intentional moreover we can also assume that they were aware that scripture says you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone in James 2.24, which was enough to drive Luther to call for the letter of James to be removed from scripture altogether. 
And he, James, says that despite Paul saying justification is by faith in Romans and faith apart from works, at least apart from the works of the law. So both James and Paul supported their arguments with reference to Abraham and the episode where his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Interestingly, however, James frames his argument around Genesis 22 and Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. And Paul's argument is a little bit more nuanced. Now, Kayla's interpretation of Genesis 22 has vexed Christian thought, and if it doesn't, it probably should, uh, and has often resulted in problematic claims being made about the very character of God by both Christians and non-Christians alike. These claims <clears throat> can be redressed through careful exegesis. And probably the line I want us to take away from the, the start is that if you, there are some there are some assumptions that people make about Genesis 22 that really do say, uh, do, do reflect poorly on God. Mm. And uh, that, that's, that's where I started off thinking, we, we've got to understand this passage a little better, uh, particularly since we're called to imitate God. And in lots of scripture, I, I would say that we're told not to do some of the things that God does here. So there, there's a, an incongruity there. Mm. So let's start with the difficult text first. The sacrifice of, I don't know why it's called the sacrifice of Isaac, because he doesn't get sacrificed. The almost sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham in Genesis 22, as understood by James. So here we are. Uh, Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he called, he, sorry, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, the answer to that first question you may not have noticed it, but that first question, was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And the answer seems to be either a tentative maybe or possibly even an awkward no. You see, the scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. We're now in Genesis 22, but in Genesis 15, um, Abraham didn't offer his son Isaac on the altar until Genesis 22. Hence the difficulty in answering the question, unless James is suggesting, this is an important point, that although it was reckoned to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, Abraham's faith was actually brought to completion by the works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar in Genesis 22. If that's the case, we really need to re-examine Genesis 22 to understand what's going on. Do you reckon everyone's keeping up so far? <laughs> you keeping up? Okay. Before going to Genesis 22, let's consider what Paul's understanding of Genesis 15 was. He says about Abraham, he did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned 
reckoned to him as righteousness. Now clearly Paul was convinced that there was no distrust made. Abraham uh, waver, sorry, no distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. <clears throat> so whatever the purpose of Genesis 22 might have been, we certainly know it was not to test Abraham's conviction that God was able to do what he promised. For it was that very conviction that already was reckoned to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. So how was it that Abraham's faith was brought to completion through the test of Genesis 22? So the question is, what was it lacking? Yeah, so yeah. needed more. Mm. Yeah, so there, there's a sense in which it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he had mm. some, some form of faith. Um, but there must have been something lacking here. Yep. Exegetical notes and interpretive choices. Let's make a couple of preliminary observations about Genesis 22. First, a test, as it is translated from Hebrew, is not always an exercise to see if someone will pass or fail, but it is often a refining process. So, after these things God tested Abraham in Genesis 22, might mean after these things God transformed Abraham in some way, just as refining transforms ore into metal. Or perhaps it meant transformed Abraham's faith in God. But how could Abraham's trust be transformed if he was already fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised? Well, perhaps it's not faith that God was able to do what he had promised, not faith in his power and his abilities, but faith in his character and disposition that needed to be transformed, perhaps. So that, that's the big idea of the paper, that there's one thing to believe that, that God is able to do something, but it's another thing where we start talking in relationship terms and say there's something about his character and dis disposition that Abraham had to become aware of. And again, another big idea, and I think I think I've noticed this one early. Um, second, why is it that Abraham pleads relentlessly with God just a few chapters earlier in, in Genesis 18 for the protection of his nephew Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, but remains silent in Genesis 22, not pleading once for Isaac, with his only comment on the whole episode being to call that place the Lord will provide. Is that the test or transformation? To realise that God will provide? Didn't he already believe that God was able to do what he promised? And that promise was to provide Abraham with descendants. For in Genesis 15, God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. If that is the case, isn't the whole incident quite redundant? Has Abraham always believed the Lord will provide? So why is this ep episode even recorded for us? Presumably. <laughs> <laughs> I might have yeah. hope so. So here's the hypothesis, right? Let's think through the possibilities. The first question is to consider this. Why did Abraham plead to God for Lot, but not for Isaac? And, yeah. 
and, and we can raise all the questions that have come up in the New Testament about Hebrews 11 and how, how he might have known that God had the power to resurrect mm -hmm. Isaac. He would have had the power to resurrect Lot. So, yep. Yep. well, maybe, maybe his faith had grown since then. Perhaps. Perhaps he thought God would resurrect Isaac, although there is no suggestion of this in this text. Right? There is later in Scripture. Hebrews, yeah. yeah. And why did he not seem to think God could resurrect Lot earlier? Perhaps he thought God could make Sarah pregnant again. Uh, which is not, <laughs> no, I'm sure that's not a popular idea with Sarah. Uh, still, that doesn't explain why he didn't plead for Isaac at all. It is as if he almost expected to be required to make a child sacrifice, for there was no element of surprise or resistance in Abraham's response. Why not? And again, I, we're, we're in big idea territory now. The gods of the world in which Abraham was raised demanded humans to sacrifice to them. And throughout the Old Testament, God's anger is particularly piqued against those nations and peoples who made child sacrifices to their gods. Great gods demanded great sacrifices, child sacrifices. And this was the religious thought world from which God was extracting Abraham. And since Yahweh was a great God, why wouldn't Abraham believe it was possible that he, God, might one day demand a child sacrifice? Of course, Abraham would not be surprised or resist this demand. It's so shocking for us. Though, I know. It's just that a whole world where child sacrifice yeah. was the norm and animal sacrifice too, I imagine. But the child sacrifice just takes it to a whole another level. It's unacceptable. It's horrific. Um, mm. And it was so normal and it is so abhorrent to us that we don't read the text no. thinking like Abraham. Um, so perhaps the problem facing Yahweh was this. Abraham believed the power of God but didn't believe in the character of God. It is a case of mistaken identity. Abraham believed that, God, that the God who gave him his promise was just like all the other gods and did not really intend good toward him, and who still expected humans to make sacrifices to, to them, them, gods. But the God who gave Abraham his promise was the God who did intend good toward him, and was unlike the gods, for this God would even make a sacrifice for humanity, rather than expecting humans to make sacrifices for him. Radical thought. Mm. And it goes back to what you said in the very first talk about that essence of sin being not trusting, trusting. that God intends good for yeah. us. Mm. This God is distinct and different, radically different to the other gods. Or as the Bible would say, a holy God, for that's what holy means, distinct, different, radically different. And, and I think we should spend more time thinking about what radically different looks like because we tend to think, well, as growing up as a kid, I used to think radically different, holy meant hangs around in Gothic buildings, <laughs> as opposed to different to the, the gods of the surrounding nations. Ah, yep. We, we tend to read things in our own context rather mm. than, yeah, than the original one. From the outset, Abraham simply believed, simply had faith in a god, let's say, who didn't really exist. You know, the god who made him a promise was, was fundamentally different to the god he was believing in. Uh, However, Abraham's faith was brought to completion through the test 
of Genesis 22, in that he came to have faith in the God who intended good and who would provide the sacrifice for humanity. Hence, the significance of the response that God will provide. And we'll circle back to that idea. Uh, but I'm just making the point, we've got to contrast the, the alternatives of what is Abraham trusting God to do or be, to, to be powerful or to have a, a benevolent character. Anyway, the, the angel appears. This episode starts in Genesis 22 with Abraham and he said, here I am. And it seems to end in Genesis 22, 11 with Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here I am. So it sort of bookended that way. The phrase acts like bookends. That part of the story is closed. And then another one opens. Now, the transformation that can occur. This next question to, sorry, the next question to ask is this. What is the function of fear in this episode? And what does the angel of the Lord now know? He said, do not lay your hand, this is verse 12, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your one and only, your only son from me. All the angel knew at this point in time, verse 12, was that Abraham believed that God was a great God, who he feared was entitled to a child sacrifice. And it is at that point, the angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. The watershed moment in history, Abraham's response is a courageous and transformative step. In a world where the great gods demanded sacrifice from humans, Abraham accepts the provision of a sacrifice from his God. Do not underestimate the magnitude of the event in, that event in human history. Nowhere in recorded history, to that point in time, had there been a relationship between deity and human humanity ever where the deity served humanity. The perceived natural order of things was for humanity to serve the deity. This is a world first in recorded human history and a complete 180 degree transformation of what was then the contemporary worldview. So first, Abraham stepped out from his homeland and his people to follow this God in Genesis 12. Then Abraham believed his God was able to keep his promises in uh, Genesis 15. Now in Genesis 22, Abraham understood the character of God was totally different and distinct from the other gods that he grew up with. As James says, Abraham's faith was brought to completion through this episode. And this is, this is so early, isn't it, in God's revelation of who he is to, to humanity. That you can really you can empathise with Abraham. He's Absolutely. learning as he goes and he's, he's grappling with who is this God who's yeah. coming. Mm. And, you know, words are metaphors. You use that you know he's a God and you know what all the other gods are like. So God's got to work overtime to convince Abraham and Israel for that matter, because it's a refrain that turns up that I'm not like the other gods. Yes. I'm not like the gods of the surrounding nations. Mm. And so in, in what way is this God different? Now, we, we tend to think, oh, he's, he's powerful and they aren't. Right. So we, we tend to go down the power structure path rather than the 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 does God intend the good towards the yeah, other uh, The angel appears a second time. It is in this context that Abraham declared that the Lord will provide in Genesis 22, 14. And it's after the transformation that the angel of the Lord appears again a second time. 
And verse 15 says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. A lot of that's repetition of stuff that happened in Genesis 15. Mm -hmm. My interest is in verse 16 and particularly the object ref referenced by the this and the function of the and in because you have done this and have not withheld your son your only son. So I'll go through this slowly because it's a little tricky. First, right, the word and can be used to join two different ideas together or to comment in two ways on the same thing. For example, of the former, the first one, two different things. I could say I've got a car and a bike. But an example of the latter might be I could say I've got a car and a convenient way to get around to the CBD. And that second one's ambiguous because it might mean I've got a car and a bike, but it might mean I've got a car, which is a convenient way to get around the city. Yeah. So as a reader of verse 16, you might decide if the end functions like the former or the latter. Is it two different things or is it a repetition to, to make the idea? Second, the this. Okay, what do you do with the this? It might be the declaration of the Lord will provide in Genesis 14. So the, because you've done this, because you've declared the Lord will provide, um, that that's the this mm -hmm. and the courageous the second idea is the courageous faith exhibited in genesis 22 is not um, to not sacrifice isaac and to take the unorthodox step of accepting the provision of a sacrifice from god and the third one i've got is a reference to the fact that abraham did not withhold his son his only son the this is not the third case for the simple reason that, that, that the this and the end become quite redundant because if you they're if you the same thing if you replace the this with that it, it reads um because you've done this have not withheld your son your only son and have not withheld your son your only yeah. son sure. so there, there's something dreadfully awkward about that interpretation so it's one of or both of the first two suggestions where the first is virtual commentary on the second which is the works the work of faith that is manifesting, faith manifesting itself in action. Actually, it's faith manifesting itself in inaction. And, well, yeah, Jesus, mm. like, it's a huge step of faith where yeah. everyone knows you've got to kill stuff. Mm. And he goes, I'm going to trust you and not kill something. Like, it's, 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 it's beyond our comprehension. Because but is we've it not that the angel stopped him? Uh, the angel told him to stop. Told him to stop, yeah. Told him to stop, yeah. yeah. And pre presumably, the angel could have, if, if he said, no, nah, I'm going to go through this because that's what all the realms would do, the angel would have stopped it from happening. But he but listened to the angel and he, yeah. he did stop it. And really, uh, tangent already, but God could have made his point by having him kill Isaac and resurrected him. Mm. Um, Which is the Hebrews 11. Yeah, place, so, yeah. yeah. We, and yeah, Hebrews 11 is interesting because it, it does make it seem a little bit rhetorical but yeah if why 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 wouldn't god allow that option i think there's a whole lot of reasons why god 
wouldn't because then you've got a resurrection too early and it'll confuse people about what God is going to do. So there's a whole lot of reasons where I think you, you wouldn't do that, God. You, yeah. you'd, you'd want to keep the, that one up your sleeve. Um, <laughs> now, this text opens up. Yeah, the paper ends very abruptly, I'm sorry. Now, this text opens up questions to do with justification and faith that we'll address in future discussions. So you see, this, sorry, this was in the middle of another discussion nine years ago. While we might still maintain a very binary understanding of justification, and talking about binary and non-binary wasn't a problem so much nine years ago, but now I feel a bit awkward about having that. Very binary understanding of justification, either justified or not. It would seem that faith is a little bit more dynamic and it needs further debate. The short story is Abraham had his understanding of the identity of the God he followed transformed in Genesis 22. His faith was brought to completion. Uh, a bit of an epilogue. The application point of Genesis 22, according to some of the sermons I've heard, takes the form of the question, what would you be prepared to sacrifice for God? And even, would you sacrifice your one and only son for God, like Abraham? That's Pretty horrific service. Well, yeah, yeah, mm. and um, yeah, yeah. But mm. when when you try to apply it, you, yeah, you, yeah. You, might might that not be the absolute antithesis of what the text's trying to say? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah. So there is a sense of God leading Abraham to and from an understanding just of He's a powerful God, and yes, I'll follow you, and you are able to actually you're not like the gods around here you are not requiring sacrifice and in fact you are going to provide yeah. the ram that is going to be so there's still a sacrifice that happens but it's not his son mm. it's big isn't it the, yeah. because when, when we hear abraham say god will provide you go oh that's good there, there was something lacking and he provided and you go no 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 it wasn't there was something lacking. There was a negative thing about to happen, mm. and it's transformed. So when when we say because people will say that, you know, that the, the central the, the chiasm point of of the passage is about provision, it's it's not you know how he provides our daily bread. It's actually it's more than just provision. It's it, it's a radical transformation of the whole event. Rather mm. than humanity providing for God, God provides for humanity. Yes, and, and keeping that context of all the other gods requiring the child sacrifice, just how this was such a mind shift in, in Abraham's thinking. And, yeah. a, and a necessary thing for God to do this as a... Because when you first read it, we happen to be going through Genesis in our church sermon series at the moment. And, and when you first read Abraham and Isaac, if you haven't read it for a while, you think, oh my goodness, what is God doing? This just sounds horrible. How could he even ask? Because if he asked one of us to sacrifice a child, it would just be, there's no cultural context. And, and it makes such a difference to think about that yeah. cultural context of the religions around that this was something he would just would have expected. And the shock for him is not being asked to sacrifice Isaac. But that he ended up not having to do it. Not and having God to do it. Provides yeah. instead. So you can see why, because we, we know in other cultures, contemporary cultures, that require people to have a certain faith. Um, when you don't do what everyone else does, mm. if if anything bad happens on the community, they blame you mm. because 
we're, we're all worshiping God properly and you're not, you're, you're the problem, mm. which hunts in Salem. You know, That's it's, right. It's, and which is Augustine, I think I was telling you the other day, I finally make my way through the city of God. <laughs> and that's Augustine's point in that, that all of the, um, the Romans were blaming the Christians for the fall of Rome because they'd stopped worshipping the Roman gods and therefore it's your fault. You can't do anything differently. So I think Tony pointed out that one of the first recorded moments in history of, or Lee first, he said, I'm not sure where he got it from, of somebody leaving their family and going out mm. is Abraham, because you didn't mm. do that. No. But when you realise what God is going to do with Abraham and not expect him to provide sacrifices, God had to get Abraham out of his community, because mm. if he's remaining in a community and not offering sacrifices, mm. he's going to be treated like Jonah, to, to mix metaphors. Mm. He, he's going to be thrown off. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's such a radical thing that that for him to get to know the character of God as a God who actually cares and loves and initiates provision rather than Abraham having to serve him. Yeah, it, it must have been. All right, so the, the, you've got the the argument over Lot, which, when as a reader, just going through because at college we did read a response criticism where you just try to read the narrative and see how how it's working mm -hmm. and there's part of you that says wow he, he's bold in the way that he keeps on throwing up to God and and debating with God about whether this is such a good plan um, okay that's that's what what he does mm -hmm. and then having been successful the first time you know, in chapter 18 he gets to chapter 22 and says I'm, I'm not going to bother mm -hmm. It, it does, yeah, I, I assume that the reader, the, the reader when it was first put down, didn't, didn't have the same dissonance we do, trying to work out what's, what's going mm. on. They, they would have known there's a good reason for him not to, to plead for yeah. Isaac. I, we were at a talk at our church the other night and it was a, an Old Testament lecturer speaking and she was saying that when we delve into Genesis, she was speaking about violence against women in Genesis that we have to have the mindset of cross-cultural missionaries, that we're going into another yeah. culture and we have to do all the work <laughs> that's required as if we cross-cultural <coughs> missionaries and come to this other culture with, with a real curiosity rather than assumptions. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It is. And I, I think in other ways we, we do that because when, you know, we'll say, it, it's, it's common to say, oh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is, is outrageous. You should be more forgiving than that. But mm -hmm. when you see in cultures how quickly, and I mean in contemporary, not just ancient cultures, that where you, you have some sort of payback, how much one eye becomes two eyes, becomes somebody's life, becomes, you know, it, it gets out of hand. You can see why, uh, what, what, what God is telling them to do in the Old Testament is actually restraining people. Mm. Mm. doesn't quite say just get over it <laughs> well that, that's the problem you, it, humanity doesn't can't just get over it, it, it we, whoops why, why does God say to get even at all is that because he knows we will and he's trying to put a boundary on it or is he saying no that's what justice is mm. an eye for an eye is, is that actually justice or mm. would God prefer us to say let's forgive and move on mm. um, which is that idea, I guess, of a God who, who is taking the culture as it is and setting 
bounds, healthy boundaries around it. Whether it's no, you're not going. To, you can do sacrifices, but not yeah. child sacrifices. Um, or yes, yeah. it's only an eye for night, not. And I think I put out probably each talk. It, it's worth reading the first seven chapters of Leviticus and just having that mindset of what? What if if God knew that these people kill things because their gods haven't told them what they required? And just just imagine that that you're in a world you've got this pretty you've got this sense there is a God, there is something controlling things. There seems to be enough chaos that if somebody's controlling it, then he doesn't intend good to us or they do not intend good, right? So you, you've got this state of fear where your life experience is just telling you that that if, if there are beings in control, they're making life pretty miserable for us. And from your own experience, how do you keep other people happy? Oh, you give them stuff. And so, well, what can you give the gods? And so you make up some theory about what you can give gods. And so you start offering grain and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it still doesn't produce the, the end you want. And you you end up escalating. I mean, sociologists or anthropologists try to guess what the, the pathway is. But that, that, that seems to be a, a reasonable hypothesis that people can't seem to control their environment. They assume that there are powers out there mm. and they should try to appease the powers. Things still go wrong and life is unclear. So if you're going to place a bet, do you, do you bet that you should do less for the gods or more? Mm. And if you don't think they're on your side anyway, and even if you do the right thing, they might not. You, you, you end up at child sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and to have God say, well, no, that's not me. Mm. It's yeah. It does, it does raise the question of the whole sacrificial system. Mm. You know, in the, in the big picture, though, doesn't it? Um, what and Hebrews nine and ten certainly seems to piggyback Jesus' yep. death on the cross with the sacrificial system. So, yeah, big question. This is my question. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Well, on I mean, the, the, the passages that always puzzled me, like you, you're looking at Leviticus and a sacrificial system and temple and altars and. And you've got God saying, I don't desire the, the death of blood, uh, the blood of bulls and goats, mm. but I want a, a humble and contrite heart. And, and yet he set up the whole... So he set it up, and you know, mm. why did you set up something you don't want? My, my working hypothesis, I don't know, I was going to say a kid, but you know, it was at uni, um, was God purposely set up things to teach us, Mm -hmm. So, uh, how, how would we understand what Jesus was going to do for us unless we understood the had a sacrifice metaphor? So, he set up the sacrificial system, not because it actually achieved something, mm -hmm. but it was didactic yeah. in, the, in that. So, that was my working hypothesis. Mm -hmm. um, it's only over time that, you know, because if, if you ask the wrong question, you'll get the wrong answer. Mm -hmm. So, it, it's good. If, if you can, it's quite a challenge to look at a passage and try to think, how could I read this 180 degrees differently? Just turn it around. Yeah. And uh, once you get a, a few ideas in your head, what you go, oh, if God doesn't desire sacrifice, can you read Leviticus and the sacrificial system as something God doesn't need, but it's more about what we need? Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting experiment. Mm -hmm. And all sorts of things pop out. All sorts of things. Well, you can read it that way. Um, 
Maybe God doesn't need the blood of bulls and goats. Well, we, we know that from the from Hebrews nine because we know it doesn't work. Yeah. But it does act as a good illustration of what Jesus did. So this is where we've got to be careful when we start playing with atonement theories. You don't want to you don't want to dismiss any of those metaphors that we've got. You don't want to say, okay, there is no sacrifice atonement uh, sacrifice metaphor about the atonement. But you you might ask the question, who's the sacrifice for? Mm. You know, it might be us that require a sacrifice rather than. Mm. It's quite a lot to get your head around. It is. When you, yeah, when you've been taught, you know, in, in conservative evangelical circles, a certain lens through which to see this. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's tortured by it, and that's partly why we're doing this in gradual steps. Just, you know, if it's it's sort of like if you were Leonardo da Vinci doing the the. The Mona Lisa, you, you, you don't just start at one of the eyes and do it all, and then the other eye. You sort of put a layer of thought down and keep on building up more and more colour and definition. And I, I think that's what we've got to do because so many ideas have to shift to be able to take a, a new look at, yeah. at the, the atonement. Yeah. And you can certainly see why it's picked up by both Paul and James, why the Abraham near sacrifice of Isaac yeah. is, um, is picked up because the even just the physical um, analogy with Jesus' death is there. Like I was thinking about, you've got Isaac walking up a hill right near Jerusalem. He's got wood on his back. Like there's these really <coughs> the tones are huge. Even if you as you're just reading through Genesis 22, that this is in some way some um, yeah foreboding sort of story that's going to lead up to Jesus. And I've been reading Jürgen Moltmann's book, The Crucified God, and he in that compares, he was saying how as a father, Abraham is spared the grief of having to, to kill his child, which would not have been the case if he'd been worshipping another God. Mm. But that God the Father goes through the grief of his own son dying. And I've never thought about the Trinity in that way. I'm so used to thinking about God pouring out wrath on Jesus yeah. on the cross, that that he talks about God's grief at his son dying in this, and in a way that Abraham was spared. And I've never really thought about it like that. And it made me think about you know, that him we sing, the, the father turns his face away in the forsakenness of Jesus, that he turns his face away, perhaps with tears in mm -hmm. grief. And Maltman says that on the cross, God in one sense is ripped apart, they're utterly yep. separated, the Father does turn his face in the abandonment. But in another sense, they've never been more united in their love for humanity and the father's grief and the son's grief. No, that really, I've never thought about it like that before. When you start thinking about, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack there, mm. but, you know, one of the questions we could ask is if, if Jesus had to die for our sins, why couldn't he just die in his sleep? Quietly. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> so that, that, that's a whole a tangent. That's yeah, <laughs> another well, I mean, creation episode. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, okay. Yeah. If, if, if that's all that was required, why why the drama? And, and I think there's good good reason. I'm not sure Waltman does the reason. Someone goes through those sorts of uh, reasons. 
And in the past, like 1700 years ago, <clears throat> there was a bit of a debate about whether God suffered or not. And it was tied up in the Trinitarian debates. And one of the Trinitarian debates didn't, one of the sides didn't separate the persons of the Trinity very well. So when they talked about the Father suffering, the idea was that he that he was somehow suffered because he was somehow on the cross. Oh, right. right. So, yeah, so we go, yeah, well, that, yeah. that, that doesn't sound right. No. Um, and some people I know have thought that's what, some people are critical of Jürgen Moltmann with that they haven't read him mm. and think that's, what's going on. But Jürgen Moltmann's actually in that relational category. Yeah. He's, he's not talking ontology. He's actually no. saying the relationship's being torn apart. Mm. Um, the father suffers. Mm. And you're right, it's, it's hard to get that idea into your head when you've got the idea of pouring wrath out. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and Moltmann tries to preserve God, that God, God is angry at <coughs> sin, but it's not it's the sin that Jesus represents, yeah. not it. That there's grief at what's happening to the sun. Yeah. Mm. And again, I think we become <coughs> victims, obviously a defensive posture, we become victims <laughs> of the the metaphors or the, the sermon illustrations we hear, mm. hear right? So I, I heard a sermon illustration, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, where um, you've got to think of the wrath of God like one of those um, containers that holds molten... Mm. Uh, steel, and that's what God pulled all over Jesus. And you go, okay, okay, that's pretty bad. But it, 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 the, the way the words work, it, it could have been, yeah, there, there was the problem of sin was like water in a bucket, and the bucket got kicked over, it was poured out. Mm. You know, and you go, mm -hmm. oh, okay. Right, it's, just been, it's gone. That's it's right, different. and you end up with such a different understanding of who God is. Mm -hmm according to those two different metaphors. And yeah, and it's a well-meaning sermon illustration uh, could, could take us down a path that really isn't doing justice to the character of God. Mm. And we, which is a, a serious question, because you go, okay, if, if we're going to make a mistake, right, we're not sure. And if you're going to make a mistake, do you, do you want to throw up to, to the judgment seat and be the one who says, oh, Sorry, I thought you were much more loving than you actually are. <laughs> I just can't see that being a problem. Mm. Or, oh, sorry, I, I didn't imagine you could be that loving. You know, which, which way do you want to run? Mm. Um, and people will talk about the righteousness of God and how God's got to do certain things, otherwise he's not righteous. And you go, no, no, we've decided what righteous is. And now we're getting him to perform to that. What if he's got a radically different view of what righteousness actually looks like? If, if the if the cosmos, the working of reality is a certain way, and the way we think is, well, the way he thinks is radically different, it's holy, mm. and, yeah. Mm. Mm. And take some effort on our part to get, to grapple with <clears throat> Well, okay, it, it, like Abraham, it becomes a bit scary. Yeah. Because you think, well, what, 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 if, what if God is really vengeful, and I start making out that he's not? I, I'm, I'm running the Abraham problem now. What, I've got <laughs> what, what happens? What happens if that's a deception? Mm. Oh, that's a. Mm. But it makes such a big difference that what we understand of the character of God. Um, I, I've been thinking about eschatology, and Moltmann also talks about how our view of the end time is going to make a big difference in terms of how we view God, and then how we live as Christians. Because he says, you know, if you see. Um, the end time as that we were all wished away to heaven is out there yeah. then 
on earth now we're likely to just escape into our little Christian bubble and because that's what we think it's it's going to be versus if we think it's um, a battle between good and evil at the end then we can be quite combative as Christians and we're out there combating evil so how we see the future which reflects God's character hmm. then is how we act as believers here and in the same way how we see the cross um, and the nature of God that's exhibited is going to radically, which is what you, your points have been over the last three weeks, yeah, yeah. radically change how, who do we think we're praying to. Um, if we're called to be in his image, yeah. then gosh, that's really important that we get this right. Who is the God who we're meant to be reflecting and then how we relate to each other. There's big yeah. stakes here getting this right. So you know, what does Genesis 22 do to your parenting style? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're supposed yeah. to have it, you know, well, you can... Engage in some form of psychological bullying and carrying mm. on. It, it, it's yeah. it's difficult. But going back to the, um, and I've said this before as well. That for me, the 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 big starting point is when God made the creation. He knew this was going to be the place that God the Son was going to dwell with His people forever. Mm. Mm. And you know, Bill Dumble would say it was not like the creation. The creation resurrected there was he, he would argue that it was always going to be improved and this was yep. only a training ground yep. but this is where we were learning obedience to god under his tut tutelage mm. and that that conveys a whole lot of things about the creation at least the pre-fall creation that this this place is perfectly designed we assume perfectly because god's got choice and he doesn't if he's got choice we assume that he chooses to do what he thinks is going to perfectly achieve his purposes mm. um I've had people argue that point. Right. Okay. <laughs> really? Um, that it's perfectly established for God to communicate, to commune, do whatever he wants to do with his people. So obviously omniscience and things like that don't don't rate. There's something else that rates. Um, spoiler alert, it's probably got something to do with love. <laughs> but the, the next big step for me is when God makes human flesh. He knows that he's going to, well, he, he is designing human flesh, knowing that God the Son is going to wear it forever and dwell with his people. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge concept because, well, for me, that, that's always been that idea of the incarnation, that what we're made of is good enough for God to wear. You've got to be careful how you say that because people get intense. But, <laughs> but what we're, we're made of is good enough for God to wear eternally. Mm -hmm is it, it changes your view of everything mm -hmm. you, and, and, and who we are and how important we are to God's plans and purposes. So I actually think the starting point uh, helps you work out what your eschatology is. Mm. Um, it goes both ways. Yeah, it goes both ways. But, <laughs> yeah. And I, I think when you, when you start mucking around with eschatology, this is what it's going to look like in the end. You can't help but go back. Well, where, where, where mm. were things before this all started before? Mm -hmm. Wow. Who knew that Genesis 22 was going to open up? Yeah, I, mean, I, I might be wrong. In the, it's a, it's, it's a, it contradicts a lot of. Well, it doesn't doesn't contradict, but it's different to how a lot of other people read it. Um, I think it's got merit. Mm. Do we do we have people with questions? There's one in the chat. Oh, could you read one it? To in us? The chat. I, I'm not sure I can find it. Any thoughts on how this story connects? Or fits in with the standard understanding of penal substitution where God is said to do what Abraham didn't have to do sacrifice and murder his own son 
Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, there's, all right, there's a lot in that. Where do, where do we start with that? Um, May you repeat it? Okay. Yes. Yeah, go, go through it again. Oh, my, no, you, you, you need to repeat it. Oh, I need to repeat it. Oh, okay. Microphone. I don't remember what it is. So, the, the short story, if I forget anything, there, see it's in the in chat, chat there. Yeah, I, I don't know how to find a chat, do I? It's, it's going to be a learning experience for us all. Chat to... Ah, there you go, I did. Uh, the audio is difficult to hear. Uh-oh. Um, any thoughts on how this story can connects, fits in with the standard understanding of penal substitution where God is said to do what Abraham didn't have to do, sacrifice and murder his only son? Um, I think... Where, where do you start with that? I... I assume because God has choices if he if he knew a better way of holding his whole plan for creation and us together he would have done it mm -hmm. and so, so I don't think it's uh, without reason Jesus says you know haven't you got a better plan than this at Gethsemane like um, and if there, so my starting assumption is God couldn't think of a better plan and what I don't think is, I, I don't think part of that plan is, you know, I've, I've got some deep-seated need for something to be killed. I, I, I don't think that's, that's what's going on. So I, I think if that's the standard view of penal substitution, I want to, I want to be suggesting, I, 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 I pre-raised this earlier as well. So at, at college, for various reasons, we had a project to do. Um, and we, we uh, Rachel might remember this, that we, we had to pick a, an early church heresy of some sort oh, and, <laughs> and then sort of write the, the case for it and, or, and against probably. And uh, someone in the class said, do we have to use one of their heresies or could we make up our own? And I thought, what a, what a great idea. Uh, make up your own heresy. <laughs> should this make us worry? Yeah, should no, no, it the only way you make breakthroughs is if you're, you're prepared to ask radically different mm -hmm. questions, yeah. right? Because how do you yeah. know epistemologically that what you think is right when you don't don't sort of triangulate and yeah. move the and assumptions around? Yeah. yeah. So it's it's if you're relatively confident in what you've been taught, you, you're not you're not unhappy to put it through the, the mill. Mm -hmm. And um, so in college, I started thinking about an alternate um, atonement theory. And as I said last time we met, that was partly because I came from a background that talked about limited atonement. And if you believe that the atonement is limited, then you, you, you sort of find yourself hurtling down this line of thinking that God not only predestined the elect, but also those who are going to mm. hell. Yeah. Um, and it, it becomes really difficult because the, the view of God you get theologically looks really different to what you seem to read in scripture. It, it doesn't look like Jesus. And you can see why through history people have said the God, God of the Old Testament is really different to the, uh, the New Testament, or they've said God the Father is radically different to God the Son. You know, I, I've spoken to people, religious Christian people, who actually think that Jesus' role is, even now is to mediate against, for us against the wrath of God. Mm. And you go, oh. You think, well, how can that be? Well, it is a worry, particularly mm. if we're saying Jesus 
died once for all to deal with everything. Mm. It, it doesn't quite make sense. So the, the reason I say that is I, I, we, we're still in a process of wanting to, to move a whole lot of thoughts along. Um, and I, I actually don't think the way penal substitution traditionally understands what God did uh, is, is murdering his son. Um, and part of, part of the reason for that is exactly what Maltman says, that I, I think, you know, God didn't suffer, God the Father didn't suffer on the cross, but he, no. he suffered with that tumor relationship. Yeah. Now again, I mentioned my bias in the first talk. Um, I, I grew up uh, with, with my father teaching me lots about Christian faith, and he died just before I turned 11. And so I, I can remember at school, maybe 13 or so, thinking about Easter and how I would have let the whole world die, not to have my dad die. And how there was something about having that father-son relationship torn apart that you just wouldn't do. So I, I, oh yeah, I remember the time. I, was, I could see kids smoking behind the toilets and, <laughs> and a teacher coming. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, God, I, I'm not sure I thought of this clearly, but in retrospect, you know, we, we, do we think of God as the wicked schoolmaster who's lurking in the shadows trying to catch kids smoking behind the toilets? Or is God actually on our side? And when we stumble and fall, he's the one who picks us up and keeps us running. And is he the God who's actually trying to find an excuse to sneak us into the eternity rather than a reason to keep it pure and holy and really nice? And so I, I just say that's my bias. I, my bias has always been God. If you kill your, your son, have your relationship with your father torn apart. You're not looking for reasons to keep people out. You're mm. looking for excuses to keep them in. Yeah, it's, it's extravagant. Yeah. <clears throat> and again, that's, that's when, when you look at the parable of the, um, the prodigal son, mm -hmm. you've got this passage that in, in Middle Eastern thought is actually really embarrassing. You've got the, the father lifting his skirt, showing his knees and running, um, none of those things are good. No. And then Jesus is saying, well, that's what their heavenly father's like. You know, no. the, to, the, to the Pharisees around listening, that's a horrific thought that this noble, awesome God is, is yeah, just yeah. embarrasses himself to, to be, have us return. Mm. And yet, so we don't, so that image of the, the molten wrath being poured out on Jesus is obviously a sort of... <laughs> A really negative and damaging one that's totally at odds with the father yeah. running, and yet somehow there's I don't know if we're going to get to this in future weeks. There is this idea of God's whether it's God's indignation, as Bentley Hart translates, of God's yeah. anger at brokenness, at sin, at or his as Tony would put it, that sort of sense of our frustrated vocation that we're not yeah. living up to who we call to be. Yeah, it's it's hard. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure what the the appropriate emotional response is when you when you've built this beautiful creation. Mm. You've designed it for your son to live with his people in forever. Mm. You've created human flesh, and so you've got this grand plan of what you'd like, mm. and it gets frustrated. So, what what what's the range of response you're allowed if mm. you're God? Mm. Um, is it like anger seems like a like, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. There's, there's got to be frustration, indignation. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I want I want this put right, mm. but but <laughs> does it have to be retributive? Yeah. Um, I think if 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 you really love and are committed to your plan, then why why is retribution necessary? Now the argument is there's something about the nature of God that requires righteousness, mm. and we're going to tick that one off and say no no no. We may have misunderstood how to translate righteousness. Even yeah. Judge raised that. Leon Morris raised that. <clears throat> We've got to be very careful that we don't have, say, a reformation or general human view of what we think righteousness is. Um, because, you know, Edwin, I did point out that in <clears throat> there, there were passages where a, a, a master had a slave girl who was getting out of line, which is an interesting term. They, they, everyone had their place in the in the the cosmos, mm. and if you got if you if you moved out of your station, you were bringing the whole you were making the whole world wobble, right? Mm. You, and so to to actually beat her back into line was actually a righteous act. Now we would never say that's a no, righteous no. act. So you, we a little bit more time could be spent on on what righteousness is. Mm. I think we've got a one more question. Another question's come up. Does Abraham remember Sarah when raising this is a quote he's clear I can't help but think but I can't help but think he does that he is more knowing than a knight of faith that he is shrewder than an unquestioning servant to a divine patriarch it seems to me that the choice at the heart of the attic okay. is Akada is finally not Abraham but Yahweh's Jane Winsel. Okay. And that's the question. Is it plausible? Is it is it plausible that Abraham is testing God? Uh, so the, the quote is Does Abraham remember Sarah when raising his cleaver? I can't help but think that he does, that he is more knowing than a knight of faith, that he is shrewder than an unquestioning servant to the divine patriarch. It seems to me that the choice at the heart of the Akedah is finally not Abraham's, but Yahweh's. Uh, new thought to me. Um, I, I want to ponder that. that. That is Abraham testing God. You, you do have the, the, the argument that God says at the beginning of the passage, I want to test Abraham. And yeah. <laughs> so, Depending on what that word test is. Yeah, well, yeah. So the, the, the trial, the temptation, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the tempering, the transformation yeah. is, is God's idea. Mm. Yeah, I might have to ponder that, that more. But going back to the test idea, um, again, when, when, we, when we use the fire metaphor, mm. not that it's used in this passage, um, we, we think of fire as something that hurts, it burns, it destroys, mm. sorry, heals. it does, does damage. Um, and certainly the ancient people associated fire with those things because that's pretty normal. But one of the things that they felt that we, we don't feel is they, they often were close enough to see somebody get some ore usually tin, mm. and heat it up mm. and watch that tin miraculously refine itself, things drop away, and all of a sudden you're left with this shining tin or gold or silver or something like that. So the, 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 the idea of heat being a refining process and bringing glory out of 
dirt mm-hmm. um, is, a, is a powerful metaphor. Mm-hmm. And so when we see anything about burning and destruction, we because often the word's not destruction too, often the word is dissolve. So it, it, we, we sometimes, have, the translators get that a little bit mm. wrong because we, we think of fire as destroyed. Destroy, yeah. yeah, so when, when I say that we, the, the word test is better translated, transform, uh, it's not without cause, that's, that's what they thought happened. Mm. Mm. And it certainly is like for Abraham to go through this in the Genesis 22 passage, it's, it's tumultuous for him. <laughs> so it's a, it's a refining, but like so many of the refinings that we go through, it's through suffering, it's through trial, like it's, it's God using something that's yep. a great struggle in our lives and it's then that we have the realisations. Yeah. Which isn't only in our Christian lives, it's no. in all of life. So, so we were talking earlier about suffering because I, I think we're in an age where all suffering is bad. Mm. Right, but if I wanted to win a marathon, which I do not, <laughs> there'd be a lot of suffering involved, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's just a choice. If I wanted to become a sprinter, there's a lot of suffering involved, mm. right? So there's something about growth, and, and we know that you know that when when you lift muscles or use muscles to lift, they get torn, and there's a degree of damage, and then they rebuild and they get stronger. So there's something embedded in the creation that means let, let's not call it suffering; let's call it hardship. Mm-hmm. Um, creates good. Mm-hmm. And I think I first realised this when you realise that some of the best wool in the world comes from Australia, which is some of the harshest climates for sheep to live in, mm-hmm. right? So when, when they've got nice comfy lines, they get this really nasty thick wool that's only good for car- carpet. Right. But you put them in a harsh environment, they get this nice fine super wool, apparently. Um, and when the same with grapes. You know, you get grapes that are where everything's perfect for them. Mm-hmm. They plump and make lousy juice for wine. But you get put them into a harsher climate, they start making better stuff. So there's this, there seems to be this pattern where um, it, it's, yeah, we, 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 learn, we learn through yeah. through suffering. Like it says in here, he your hardship is disciplined, God is yeah, treating your sons. But Jesus learns obedience through suffering, yeah. which is a spin out from, in so many ways. Yeah. Jesus, God, learns, learns. It's extraordinary. Uh, through what? Through whatever suffering is. Yeah. And again, we were talking about, even in the garden, of Eden before the fall, was there suffering? Well, you know, there is some form of suffering in that Adam has a choice. He can either train to be a, a marathon runner or a sprinter. He can't do both. He can plant apples or oranges. He can't mm. do both. There's, there's choices that have to be made mm. because we're, we're finite. Yeah, yeah. And there's limitations there. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's been um, transformative in terms of understanding this passage. Well, I found it wonderful to reflect on it in this way that Abraham is learning about the character of this God who is so different from the gods around and he is being transformed himself through what was a pretty tumultuous thing for God to do and yet clearly God knows what he's doing and it's there as an example for us and it's there as this shadow that's leading up to the reality of of Jesus that he yeah, whether that was the original intention, that's how it has, in his providence, yeah. <laughs> um, worked out that it helps us to understand um, the cross. Mm. So if you were doing a, a sermon on this, what, what, what would you do as the application for it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, good question. Well, well as, I th- as I said before, I think it, the, na- the character of God who do we pray to, the type of prayers that we're going yeah. to pray will be transformed. 
um, what our expectations of him are, if we're scared of him, if we're not scared of him. Yeah. Um, does he intend good for us? Does he not Absolutely. intend good for us? Yeah. My, I, I think it's like that. Yeah, I think it's, are, are, you, become, are you drifting back into where Abraham started mm. is, is the problem. Are we starting mm. to, do, do we actually think, exactly as you said, God doesn't intend good towards us? Um, and you'll hear people say that, oh, I did this thing wrong, so God's going to get me. And you go, mm. whoa. I, I don't, yeah, it, that's an interesting thought that, that people have, that when they sin and do things wrong, God's got to somehow even things up. Because mm. again, if, if, if the cross has dealt with everything, yeah. then why? Why does he have to do that? It is dealt with. Fantastic. So we're looking forward to... There's more in this series. Yeah, apparently. We're not sure how to end this series. <laughs> it just keeps going on. Yeah, we'll go for a while. <laughs> but nothing more important than thinking about Jesus and the and and the cross, the very thing which which reconciles us yep. to our God. Yeah. And thank you, Andrew. Thanks for putting all this work in and Thanks. this paper and we can keep reflecting. Can indeed.